Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. My name is Mike Brown. I'm the creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. What's poppin' everybody? Is everybody adorable, beautiful, fantastic? Sexy. Oh, they're sexy. Sexy people. Sexy people. (laughs) We're gonna get sued. But it's not his song. It was my song. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. <laughs> a yum, yum, yum. This is episode 94 and part two of Murder Most Pointless, Lynn Duggan and Patty Ducharme. Whew, yeah. What a what an incredible uh, episode you put together last week. Thank you. I yeah. really enjoyed having the first person narration. information yeah. from yeah. Cheryl. And we have more of her narration here in this episode. Yeah, yeah. It's just something really, really powerful when, I mean, we learn a lot about are victims we learn you know often we'll hear from them in pre-recorded stuff but something yeah. about hearing you conversing with her yeah her really makes things hit home so to remind people last week we heard from cheryl duggan she is the twin sister of lynn who had disappeared after a bloody attack in her own north vancouver apartment in june of 1993 mm-hmm. cheryl shared her feelings and some of the experience that she and her family endured amid the subsequent investigation and searches for her sister lynn duggan's skull had been found in 1994 but no more shortly after that discovery brock graham decorated ex-vpd police officer and the main suspect in the case already named publicly by the RCMP, moved to Vancouver Island to be away from the heat. He'd moved in with his girlfriend, Patty Descharm. And where did they move to? Campbell River. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty small little town. It is. It's, it's a, a pretty small, town. so definitely trying to uh, lay low. Yeah. So Brock had been living with his sister in Campbell River for three months. 
He liked having a few girlfriends and was often stringing more than one of them along. Jeez. He had his eye on more permanent arrangement to extricate himself from his sister's place as quickly as he could. Hmm. One of the women he'd met since escaping the mainland was named Patricia, or Patty Descharmes. She was a mother of four. Oh, okay. In December of 1995, Brock Graham moved in with Patty and the three of her kids still living at home. Her oldest daughter, Nicolene, was old enough to have moved out and was living on her own. Oh, okay. So a wide age range. Yeah. Between kids, okay. Yeah. From nine all the way to adult, yes. Okay. Due to, quote, privacy laws, police were prevented from warning Patty of the danger she might be in. We mentioned last week that there were claims in an article it published in March of 1996 that Patty was warned by friends about Brock's past. Patty's family has been unable to verify this and does not believe it even happened. They feel strongly that this was hearsay and that Patty had no idea of Brock's, at that point, alleged involvement with a previous murder. One of the first things Brock did to ingratiate himself with the family was to give Patty a thousand dollars to help with the bills. Far more than any of the other previous boyfriends had done, Brock wooed the family with his initial generosity. Brock Graham's family and Patty's were thrown together due to the relationship. Patty's kids, in particular her eldest son Jason, began to hang with Brock's sister's kids and started to get in trouble. Fairly common amongst youth. A fight took place where Jason and Brock's nephew Rory got roughed up. Ooh, yeah. When Patty saw Jason bloodied and beaten, Patty wanted to call the cops. Brock convinced her to let it go even though the harassment by the other parties continued for the next week at school. Mm. Perhaps Brock was trying not to draw attention to himself, plus he was still on probation for the gun charge. Mm-hmm. He wanted to keep the police as far out of his new life as he possibly could. So not looking out for the best interest of Patty and her family. That's correct. Looking out for his best interest. Exactly. There had been other red flags too. Easy to miss out on out front, but easy to see in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Once while driving, Brock asked Patty and the kids if they wanted to rob a bank. They all said no, of course, but Brock pressed on further, saying if he did it, he knew how to get away with it. Jeez. Brock asked Christopher, Patty's younger son, if he'd ever considered working in a funeral home. When the boy asked what he'd do there, Brock said, wash bodies or something? The boy thought the suggestion was disgusting. Brock said it wouldn't bother him at all. Some weird conversations Brock's having here. Yep. Brock also suggested he'd teach Christopher knife fighting, another offer that he was not taken up on by the non-violent young man. Yeah, these are some bizarre um, things he's trying to pass on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have some pretty crazy conversations with my kids. Yeah. But it, it, it's all part of context, and it, like these just seem like... I'm Weirdly not, dark. Yeah, I'm not, I've never been like, hey, kids, so um, see, see the Circle K over there? How do you feel about Robin? We should go knock it over. Yeah, like you and, and you and Bibby and, <laughs> and Violet. I can I can imagine you guys like kicking the door in. And, <laughs> Give me your money. <laughs> but I, like I just, it's just a bizarre conversation to be having with kids. Yeah. Sometimes Brock would sit and meditate all night long, legs crossed on the floor, eyes closed, from midnight until six a.m. in the morning. 
When Christopher asked him why, Brock replied simply that it helped him relax. I don't think it's helped him enough. All night long. It was definitely not remorse for having murdered an innocent woman in her home that kept him awake. Mm. He wasn't capable of that. Perhaps the insomnia was due to Brock's self-centered anxiety and continual paranoia that he was going to get caught and go to prison for the crime. I think that's the more likely option. Brock also showed from time to time that he had quite a jealous streak. Arnold, one of Patty's exes, called saying he was looking for a shoulder to cry on. Arnold's father had died recently of cancer, and having no one else to turn to, he called Patty, begging her to come console him, just platonically. Mm -hmm. Patty chose not to go, as she felt staying home with Brock was much easier than the consequences she'd most likely suffer after paying attention to someone other than Brock Graham. Oh, that's terrifying. So she's clearly aware of his... The cracks were beginning. Yeah, she's clearly aware that he's not a... Uh, altogether, altogether. Stable individual. But Brock had done nothing serious enough to telegraph what was coming next. Mm. At least nothing that Patty's kids knew about. Who knew what was going on when there was no one there to see it? Yeah. On Saturday, March 16, 1996, Christopher, 14, and Leanna, 10, were sent off to Edmonton to see their dad. So that's leaving one remaining child? That's right. Older brother Jason went to Victoria to visit his half-brother Jeremy. Mm. Leanna was excited for her first plane trip. Yeah. Brock and Patty would have an entire week to themselves. No kids. I mean, typically that would be an exciting thought. Yeah. Brock and Patty dropped the children off. Christopher and Leanna went through security, and Brock and Patty stayed within eyeshot of the kids, drinking at the pub in the small airport, waiting for the kids to board their plane. Mm. As they waved their goodbyes and mutually blew kisses, Leanna and Christopher had no idea that this would be the last time they'd see their mother alive. Oh my god. On March 25th, 1996, Chris and Leanna arrived back at the airport, expecting to see their mother and Brock waiting for them there. There was no sign of the adults, and no one was answering the phone at their home. So, yeah, imagine that. Kids, you're 14 and you're 9. And you come home, or you you land at the airport, Yep. and there's nobody there. Nobody there. Jesus. That's not good. No, no. So after waiting a few hours, they thought they might be stuck in traffic or something like that. They called and met up with a half-brother Jeremy in Victoria. Mm. The kids kept trying Patty and Brock, but got no answer. Patty's relatives, after hearing from the children, called Brock's sister, Sherry Pearson. They asked her if she could figure out what was going on. Okay. Sherry Pearson also called Brock and Patty's place and got no answer. So she decided that she would drive by and see if they were home. Mm. Patty's car was gone. Sherry figured they must be out, so she left and went back home. Maybe Patty and Brock had forgotten the kids were returning that day. But that was not like Patty. Yeah. Maybe something worse had gone on. Like they'd had an accident on the way down the island to pick up the kids. Like if, like I said, it was a three and a half hour drive. Yeah. That was a possibility too. Yeah, sure. Because that's not something you really forget to do. No. So something was wrong. Yeah. Something kept nagging at Sherry to return to Patty's place as time passed without any word from them. Mm-hmm. 
After getting the key from Patty's landlord, Sherry went back to the house that Patty and the kids shared with Brock. Does this sound familiar from yes, last Yes, it does. On checking the back door, she found it was wide open, as was every window in the house, but all the curtains were drawn. Very similar. Very. Sherry called out as she walked through the house, but got no replies. The only door closed in the whole residence was the bathroom door. Oh, shit. Sherry entered the bathroom and noticed an awful smell. She could see something was in the tub behind the semi-transparent shower curtain. When she pulled back the curtain, the smell got stronger. She saw a human form covered by a blanket, some hair sticking out of the top. Oh, God. Sherry hurried out of the house and returned home to call police. Police arrived and noted the distinct smell of decaying human body as they entered the home. As one group of officers cleared the rest of the house, another group tended to the bloody scene in the bathroom. There was definitely a body in the tub, and it had been there for some time. A note was pinned to the top of the blanket. A withering rose lay beside it. Taking photos and bagging evidence as they went, the police picked up the note. Oh, boy. Many of the following details of what police found in Patty's bathroom are from an article written by Greg Middleton for the province newspaper and published on April 23, 1997. The note read, Saturday, March 23, 10 o'clock. Oh, my sweet, wonderful Patty. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. I love you more than anything, and I didn't want to hurt you. I miss you so much. I don't know what to do. I thought of taking my own life. That would be too easy. I will suffer every day for the rest of my life. You were so wonderful. I never loved anyone like I loved you. I hope to God you're in a better place. I don't want to leave you. I want to be with you forever. You will always be on my mind and in my heart. All my love, Brock. End quote. Oh, that angers shit out of me. Yeah. That really, really angers me. Like, I... No, I, I'm sorry, Brock. A, a stupid note saying I'm so sorry, my sweetest pet. You killed her. Yeah. Like, not not a mention of like I shouldn't have like. Mm. Oh my god, I am mad. Police found the body of Patty Descharm, forty, bloody and badly battered in the tub underneath a blanket. She'd been dead since sometime Wednesday, March twentieth. The letter was dated March 23rd. What had Brock been doing in the three days prior to writing the note? Oh, terrifying things. There was another note on the coffee table, beside Patty's purse and some photos, outlining Patty Descharmes' next of kin, complete with phone numbers and addresses. It thoughtfully gave a warning for the two children, Chris and Leanna, not to fly home on Monday. Someone had recently cleaned every room in the house, but evidence was found that an attack had started in the bedroom, shared by Brock and Patty. So again, trying to cover a lot of the crime scene. By cleaning up, doing his Molly made thing, as uh, Cheryl mentioned last week. Yep, exactly. Patty's body told investigators and the forensic pathologist of a brutal attack. Her arms were covered in bruises, that showed finger marks of Patty being repeatedly violently grabbed and thrown about. There were three large and bloody lacerations on the back of Patty's head that split her scalp open all the way down to the bone. Oh. 
All three blows were hard enough to have knocked Patty unconscious and appeared to have taken place at least a couple hours before she perished. It was not the blows that killed her. Patty's murderer had strangled her with some kind of cord that left scrapes and angry bruises on her neck. It had taken time for her to die. There were strange, shallow cuts to Patty's foot, calf, and buttocks as if made by a pair of scissors. There was a chunk of her groin missing. Oh my god, this keeps pulling me back to that stupid note. Yeah. Oh, where was your compassion? Yeah. During all of this? Brock had attempted to dismember Patty in the tub, but gave up for some reason. The big question now was, where had Brock Graham gone? No one had seen him. Police knew Brock well. There was an undercover operator at his work trying to get him to talk about what he'd been accused of in North Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Thoughts went immediately to the safety of the Duggan family back on the mainland. A Canada-wide manhunt was launched to find 36-year-old Brock Graham, who was wanted for Patty's murder and the main suspect in the three-year-old murder and disappearance of Lynn Duggan. I spoke with Cheryl Duggan about how her family reacted upon hearing Brock had killed again. Oh, I remember that night. I just put my son to bed, and then there was a knock on the door, and Julie was at the door, and she said, he's done it again, he's done it again. And I'm like, who, what? Like, I didn't know what she was talking about, and my dad was there. And dad was just like, come on, get Brandon. You've got to come back home. He's, he's, he killed the girl in Campbell River, and he's out on the run. Wow. Did the police express any concern for your family? They did. They they said that because he's a walking time bomb now, that he's killed again. You know, he could just go on another killing spree, come back and come back here. Her, her car was gone, her debit card, and they figured he was on his way to Vancouver. Right. I, were you guys frightened? Were, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Cause, and I, I know we were all rattled, Brad especially, um, because he lived on his own, like, you know, um, with his, his son was there with him. Um, I took Brendan and I went to my mom and dad's and we also talked to the police that night and there was police staying at the end of our street too, just to keep an eye on us to make sure he didn't try and do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I can't imagine, you know, you, you don't know where he is, this person who killed your sister and now may be coming after you because you've been trying to get in his head for so long. Instant panic attack. Instant, like I, the second you find out, it just ratcheted up, and because you know what he's capable of, yeah, you know what he's capable of, and so it's not like, well, it, it, you know, what if, like, it, what ifs are removed? You know what he's capable of, and yeah. so it's just because now he's done it twice, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and you don't know where he, his head is at, yeah, well, obviously not in a good place. Well, exactly, but like, is he thinking like, I just need to, you know annihilate everybody yeah. who's ups, who's pissed me off. Some police thought he had killed himself. Ooh, absolutely. I can, I can understand that yeah. thinking. But people didn't have to wait too long to find out what went on. Oh, thank God. Patty Descharmes car was spotted in Richmond, British Columbia two days later on Wednesday morning in a parking lot at number two road in Blundell by an off-duty RCMP officer. Oh, and number two in Blundell sounds familiar because I believe that was the area that Cindy James was found in. Oh, whoa. Isn't that weird? Very. Backup was called and the car was staked out. A sloshed Brock Graham was taken into custody without incident at 1230 in the morning when he came back to the car. 
He'd been drinking at the Pump House neighborhood pub all night long. Mm. The Duggan family was horrified that Brock had killed again, but having him in custody brought some sense of relief. I remember hearing it, and I was just like, thank God. Yeah. Because now I could go back to work, and we could get back to some sort of, some sense of normalcy. I was probably at my mom and dad's, because I, I didn't go to work, because we, you know, we were all afraid, and, you know, he hated us, we hated him, so... You know. And did you think at maybe at first like he was probably going to get out and skate on this one too, or I just thought he'd probably hit rock bottom at this point that he was an alcoholic, uh, he's a loser, you know, um, I really thought maybe he might have taken his own life, you know like and the police thought at some point that he may have done that too until they discovered him right. in a pub sitting in a bar of all yeah. places. In custody, though, Brock continued to deny any responsibility for Lynn Duggan's murder nearly three years prior. He did own up to Patty's murder, although he claimed he was near blackout drunk when he committed that crime. He felt that should absolve him of some of the responsibility, of course. Yeah, I, he just seems like the kind of individual who will... There's always a reason that isn't related to him just being a piece of shit. Yeah. Some people have commented that Patty somewhat resembled Lynn. I asked Cheryl whether she thought that too. Did you see any likeness at yes, all? Yes, right yeah. away when I saw the first picture. There was, was something in the eyes, the dark hair. Um, I saw it too, and I was stricken by it. Yeah, he definitely had... A type. A type, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because apparently his wife at the time, or ex-wife, whatever, they were separated. She had dark hair too, long dark hair, so he definitely had a type. So he had that Bundy thing where he was just... <laughs> Yeah. I'm not sure what his girlfriend Martine looked like at the time, but yeah. Are you right? Yeah. So they, he's showing some very serial qualities here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, at the least, he has no qualms about eliminating somebody who upsets him in some yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Brock Graham was brought to trial for the murder of Patty Descharmes. Finally, a chance for some justice. Wow. I asked Cheryl whether her family had gone every day to the proceedings and what it was like to look at this monster and to hear him speak. Oh, wow. Yeah, we went up there. Um, I was told by my um, counselor, she said, you know, you and your family really need to go and and see that, um, see him in in the courtroom, um, see what goes on, see him get convicted type of thing, because you may never have that for Lynn. So, um, yeah, we all went up there, and we were there every day. So you heard him testify? I saw him. I heard him. I saw the picture of the drawing of where he cut her or started to cut her. It was just, yeah, it was So he was trying to dismember her in the the tub, but he had failed. He failed. He gave up. You know, he uh, left a letter on her saying how sorry he was, and that's what we heard. What did you think, like, finally seeing him uh, and... Hearing him say stuff that obviously you you, yeah. you folks would believe was baloney. Yeah, no, it was it was tough seeing him um, and to hear all the shit he had to say. Like he was just such a coward and just. Um, I remember too, you know, the Charm family were really nice to us and whatnot. And, and his sister was there, and I don't think she really liked us too much. But his sister Sherry. Sherry, yeah. Who had f- actually found Patty Disher. Yes, she introduced them, and she was the one that found them. After he had left, the kids, you know, the kids were stranded in an airport and, you know. So there you go. You you got to see this jerk who's killed your sister 
talk about having killed somebody else and, you know, making up a lot of nonsense about it. There was a lot to unpack in that little clip. I mean, weird that his sister maybe didn't like her. Like, I, you know, it could be, or I wonder if just like fraught with guilt that, that could come off Who as, knows? yeah, yeah. yeah. Em, emotions are are interesting. At trial, Brock claimed Patty had confronted him about his drinking, and when he came home drunk again that Wednesday night. She'd made the decision to kick him out. Brock said that is what has caused the argument. Mm. Brock also said that Patty had told him to get out and ran upstairs. Brock followed, claiming he wanted to make up with her and set things right. Patty fought his attempts to reach out to her and reconcile. After wrestling on the bed, he claimed they fell onto the floor. Patty was screaming at him the whole time. Brock said he straddled her and put his hand over her mouth to calm her down, saying this is when Patty bit him. Graham claimed that this was when he went into a rage and stuffed a sock into Patty's mouth. Conveniently, this is when things go black for a time. Yeah, convenient. Brock comes to, finding Patty bloodied on the bed, saying he noticed a now bloody hatchet laying nearby. He said he kept on drinking that night and the next day dragged Patty to the bathtub to, quote, clean her up as she, quote, looked bad, and he didn't want her to be found that way. You, you notice how blackouts are always conveniently, they always conveniently pop up when... In, during these crimes. Well, yeah. and, and during the moment in which you can't control the narrative because it was just you murdering somebody. Mm. He, like he, How he's able to rationalize and try to make it a... About her because it's like, well, that's when she, she bit me and that's what threw me off. Again, passing accountability. Yeah. She wouldn't have bit you if you weren't uh, beating the shit out of her. He made no mention of the strangulation. <sighs> there was more information he'd conveniently held back. Patty had gotten another job and was starting the next week. She didn't need his financial help anymore. Effectively castrating Brock, this is most likely what sent the narcissistic jerk into the rage that ended up with Patty dead in her bathtub. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Brock wanted to plead to manslaughter, but the Crown wanted him for murder. He stuck to his booze-did-it story all the way through his trial, but the judge overseeing the proceedings found him guilty of second-degree murder after all the evidence was in. He was sentenced to life, 25 years, without the chance of parole for 10. Brock was going away. This was a bit of comfort for Lynn Duggan's family. They'd seen justice in one case, but not the one they desperately wanted. The rest of Lynn's remains were still out there somewhere. Brock remained with Mum, still denying that he had anything to do with her death. <sighs> still trying to control that narrative. Well, plus he's probably very resentful against them for messing with him. For so, sure, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so he's like, I'll show you. I yeah. just won't say anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just like a petulant little kid. It, you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Just com completely about him. Childish. You, you, you've murdered two people. Yep. It's not about you anymore, you piece of shit. Brock appealed his conviction, claiming that booze left him incapacitated and that the judge's refusal to change venues caused prejudice in his conviction. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The strangulation evidence was enough to prove Brock's intention to commit murder against Patty Descharmes, throwing out his I was too drunk to know what I was doing defense. Questions had also been raised about Brock's use of performing enhancing steroids as the cause for his rages, but that was also dismissed. Mm-hmm. From court documents, an expert testified, quote, The placing of the ligature around the neck and the using of the appropriate amount of force to cause strangulation as the doctor described, not only would appear to be deliberate, but intentional. I couple that with her own actions, her own marks on her person, particularly those on her hands, which demonstrated, in the doctor's opinion, that she was attempting to defend herself, end quote. So Patty was squirming and scratching at him the whole time. God, can you imagine that fear in that moment? Just you literally fighting for your life. Mm-hmm. Brock's claim of prejudice was upheld, but as he'd chosen trial by judge and no jury, the claim was pointless. Mm. The judge himself was not a prejudiced party. That's not how the law works in Canada. Cheryl shared her thoughts on Graham's appeal. Oh, we just thought him and his lawyer, Larry Myers, were just trying to reach at anything, you know, to to get him off because he's... He was so guilty, and there was no, you know, the poor me story. Like, everybody saw through it. Us too. I I love how Cheryl doesn't hold back. Yeah, she shouldn't. No, exactly. And and she's earned the right to say what she wants about this guy. And the thing is, is it's accurate. Very. The The things that she is saying about him are spot on. Like, she sees through him. She saw through him. Yeah. She knows what he is. Not long after his appeal was rejected, on October 8th, 1998, after serving only 18 months of his life sentence, Brock, prisoner 366840D, made a request to be moved to the Williamshead Institution. The psychopath had even charmed his keepers into thinking it was a good idea. Oh my God. There were other reasons he wanted to move too. Cheryl spoke to me about this. Oh boy. We were told he... He was just a coward. He was afraid for himself. Um, He wanted to be protected more. I think word had got out who he was or he was just paranoid. Um, And William's head is kind of like a camp cupcake too, right? Yeah, he wanted to go there and and, uh, it's just, it's really, apparently really nice. And they have quite a bit, well, I don't know, freedom. But yeah, we fought that too. Like we, there was no, I think my dad, I forget who he had called or whatever, but we tried to shut that down. He didn't go. He but, ended up staying in Mountain Institution. Yes, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, when we saw that, oh, God, it was, yeah. Yeah, I remember reading an article uh, that where your dad the, was the big, bold headline, said the club is too, is too good for yeah. this guy kind yeah. of thing. And when other people heard of it, they all went crazy, too. Like, nobody wanted him to go to that. Like, nobody. Like, crazy. Well, we didn't know, too, because we had all lived in Lynn's building, the yeah. St. George's one, and it was a place for... Um, Guys that got out of jail, like a halfway. Oh, really? Yeah, because they questioned about three guys, I think, in the building. In the building? Yeah. Wow. We were like, we didn't know that. We all lived in because we called it the Walton building because, you know, Kim lived in it, Julie lived in it, I lived in sure. it. Sure, everybody says we goodnight, all, the whole so-and-so. Yeah, we all lived in that building and did had no idea that this was a place that, uh, you know, people out of these guys were roaming around. Crazy. You never know who's living next door, right? No. I mean, it could be you, Mike. Well, it is actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's horrible. Case in point. And we'll take a break right here.
And we're back. In 1999, a team went back to the area where Lynn Duggan's skull had been found. The two-day search involved 15 SFU anthropology and criminology students, a cadaver dog, and ground-penetrating radar. It was all new uh, technology. Again, no new evidence of Lynn Duggan's remains were turned up. Frustrating. Cheryl commented on this, too. And we were so happy to hear that, that, that you know, it was still, you know, she was still being thought of, and especially, you know, a, a group like that. Yeah. But nothing, nothing came out of it. Like, how frustrating is that? It's just this constant roller coaster of emotions yeah. up and down, up and down, up and down. Like, that, the toll that will take on your psyche. This was pretty much the last thing for a few years, though. Mm. Things went quiet on the news front regarding Lynn Duggan. Brock wasn't talking, but her family still wanted answers. Yeah. To deal with a powerless situation, Merv Duggan, the father, got heavily involved with a victim's rights group called Caveat and was involved in speaking on some high-profile cases, aside from Lynn's. One included Clifford Olson's bid for freedom in 1997. So her dad was involved in some of that stuff and making sure that he stayed put. Yep, another gigantic piece of shit that we've covered. Yeah. In October of 2004, having had enough of not knowing what happened to his sister, Lynn's brother Brad met with Brock Graham face-to-face -face at Mountain Institution. Whoa. The RCMP had suggested perhaps that Brock would talk to a family member and own up to Lynn's murder in a mediated face-to-face -face restorative justice session in the prison. Holy shit, okay. According to the Canadian Department of Justice website, quote, restorative justice has been part of Canada's criminal justice system for over 40 years. Restorative justice is commonly defined as an approach to justice that focuses on addressing the harm caused by the crime while holding the offender responsible for their actions by providing an opportunity for the parties directly affected by the crime, victims, offenders, and communities, to identify and address their needs in the aftermath of the crime, end quote. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate of Restor restorative yeah. justice. Uh, but man, I put myself in Cheryl's shoes and in her brother's shoes. Yeah. Cool. Cheryl Duggan explained how this meeting came about and the results. Oh, please. Sergeant Webb suggested. So I put in the application or whatever you had to do, and I got a phone call while I was at work, and she said, no, he's refusing to see you. And, and so she is the is his, his, his counselor. His, yeah, so. somebody like that. But she sounded like she was right into him. Like she just, he had her under his spell, like the yeah. way she was defending him. And I'm like, do you know what he's done? And well, you know, he hasn't been, he hasn't been charged yet. And this, that, and the other thing. Or So anyways, um, I went up and I talked to Brad and, and I told him, Brock doesn't want to talk to me. And Brad's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, Webb told me to, Sergeant Webb told me to to ask Brock and Brad's like, you're not going anywhere. You're not going near him. Like, just shut that down type thing. He felt like he he was scared that something Yeah, he might couldn't believe that I was, yeah. And, you know, and I was like, okay, that's fine. But then we had a family dinner. And one night my dad broke down. And I believe that's when Brad just said, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm going to get this guy. Guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. more colorful language yeah. used than that. Yeah. And he was on a mission. And he got in touch with, um, I can't remember the name of the company or the business, but it was Sandy and Dave. And uh, I think it took a year for it to actually get together to be able to do this. And Brock finally agreed to talk to Brad. But like I said, it was a year in the making. And so um, 
when he first went in to see him, um, Brad was trying to tell him that, no, you know, that it's been going on too long and that we're never going to go away. Yeah. And um, like, shut it down now. You might as well, because, you know, you're, it's not going away. And I guess he was talking to Brad and then he just said, well, he felt that the family, the Duggans were out to get him. And Mm -hmm. Brad said, no, I I don't know what you're talking about. And, and um, that's when uh, Brock apparently had a big envelope with all these cards and he just said to Brad, well, what about these? And when Brad opened it up, it was cards with my mother's handwriting telling him, telling Brock that the Hells Angels were going to get him. Um, and when so Brad, she was, she was she upset. She was doing her own She wanted thing. to be in his head. Absolutely. Yeah. We didn't, I mean, she didn't let any of us know that. Yeah. This is what she was doing on her own because this is what was making her feel like she was doing something for Lynn. Sure. So, um, and Brad just looked at it and he went, oh my God, like, this is my mother's writing. This is a, a you know, a mother who's brokenhearted. You, you killed right. her daughter. Like, yeah. it's like, and Brad said, look, why don't we do this? We'll do a polygraph test and I'll do one saying, you know, that we're not going to try and kill you with the Hells Angels if you'll do a polygraph too. Yeah. He did the polygraph and he failed. Yep. And then he demanded a second one. Brock did. Okay. And he failed that too. So that's when he decided, yeah, he's going to talk to Brad again and come clean. What a moment. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Finally, the turning point. Yeah. Yeah. This family's not backing down and I love him. Yeah. Wow. I'm just trying to put myself in Brad's shoes. Yeah. You'll hear more about it here. Yeah. The second meeting between Brock Graham and Brad Duggan happened in the spring of 2005, almost 12 years after Lynn's death. Brad was prepared with questions in what shaped up to be a critical point in the ongoing investigation to solve Lynn Duggan's murder. Brock started to talk. Oh my God. Cheryl told me about the aftermath of this meeting. Oh my God. Brad went back to talk to him and I got a phone call. I was at work. And I got a phone call from my boss saying, you know, your brother's on the phone. And Brad said, can you get home? You know, I'm on my way back now from the, from being to where he had to go with Brock. And um, so I said, yep, okay. So I, I left work and we all got together. But my mom and dad weren't sitting at the table with us. They were in the backyard. And that's when he said, you know, he, he killed her and that he used a hammer because we didn't know what he had used. He used a hammer. Um, an argument took place and... He felt threatened by Lynn. You know, Lynn was 5'2", he was 6'4", or something, and this little woman... Big, scary cop. Yeah, yeah. Versus little tiny lady. Little big man was was afraid of Lynn. Yeah. Um, First of all, he did a karate chop to her face because he felt like she was lunging at him. So he did a... So that's what the hole in the teeth on the front, but on the back with a huge gaping hole, that's where he said that he saw a hammer on her floor at the end of the bed, and he took the hammer and he struck her about five or seven times. So a hammer just happened to be sitting yeah. at the end of uh, yeah. end of Lynn's bed. I still can't figure that one out. Right. Because I've been in there. I can't figure out why she had a hammer at the end of her bed. But that's what he did. And there was blood splatter all up the wall that the police told us about after the fact. Mm. Um, yeah. And then that's when he took her to the bathroom and, and uh, dismembered her and cut her up. And then okay. he took her out in his car. And I think he did a shallow grave and uh, in the demonstration forest. Brad ha- also had to get out 
and step out for a few minutes to because take a breather, to, to, yeah, yeah to hear he just that heard his sister's yeah murdered. and the guy's so close to him and I think he said because of his hockey uh, the discipline that he learned through hockey that helped him to um, maintain his maintain composure. yeah 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 so then he got himself composed went back in and you know he made him draw a map and uh, then he agreed so I guess they did a reenactment with the police and they all went up to. So they, did they, they took Brock to... Brock was in, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, they made arrangements, and I believe Brock, we didn't know what day or anything that yeah. happened, but they did They did a reenactment. Um, he took them to where he said he dumped her body, and and then he was charged. My God. Yeah. <sighs> That's some intense conversation right there. Yeah, the discipline Brad... Showed, yeah. I don't think I could keep myself... That composed. That composed. Yeah, no, me neither. Like hearing from somebody sitting in front of you that they murdered your sister. And tell you how they did and it. And tell you how they did it. To not jump up and just start pounding yeah. on that individual yeah. takes more strength yep. than, than actually most people can. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, Brad, I'm so sorry you had to hear that. Brad was given due credit by the RCMP for cracking his sister's murder now almost 12 years ago. The search in the area that Brock pointed to on the map and actually took investigators to turned up nothing. Cheryl believes he held back the real location of Lynn's body for some reason. Perhaps he wants to use this exclusive knowledge as a bargaining chip to manipulate his situation later on. I could totally see that. I just think he's always wanted to be one step ahead of the police. Yeah. I don't think he's ever told the truth. I don't believe that. I think the only reason why they only found her skull is because I, if he dismembered her, cut her up, he knows that he needs to scatter her everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, the police tried to tell me differently that, you know, no, he's going to try and want to remove the body quickly. But with him being a cop, you know, I, I just never believed him. And I, I don't think he's told the, the truth to this day. I don't think that's where he put all of her. I think she's scattered. He hated our family. I, I think it killed him to even have to confess. But as Brad said, we weren't going anywhere. Right. So. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, once again, I completely agree with Cheryl. I've done and watched enough true crime in my time and done enough episodes to know when somebody's dismembered, it's usually to spread. Yeah. And so I, I think she's probably spot on yeah. on her assessment. She's been spot on so far. Brock was convicted of another count of second-degree murder. Oh, good. Another 10 years without the possibility of parole after another life sentence. The Duggan family attended the sentencing. Brock spoke during the hearing. He apologized. They weren't buying it. He did the same speech that all of the killers say, you know, like, I'm so sorry, I don't know how to, you know... It was like a, a a speech that he was practicing over and over. It was so fake. And he was looking down the ground. So I yelled at him. I said, don't look at the ground. Look at my parents. Well, that was you. Yeah. Okay. I read that yeah. somebody did that. Yeah. And uh, so then he started the apology. And I think my dad said, don't bother. And my mom, they both said something. I don't remember, you know, like. Somebody yelled that they hoped that he would rot in hell. That was my sister after she finished doing her um, her statement when she was walking by him. She just said, I hope you rot in hell. But also the Ducharme family, too. The parents were yelling, too, that we don't accept your apology either. Like, everybody was yelling. And that was what was so weird about this court case, because it was so full. And they had all the media over on the one side. 
And this judge was absolutely wonderful because yeah. with everybody yelling back to Brock when he was trying to give his, you know, forgiveness speech, um, usually, you know, they, you'd hear them say, you know, order in the court or calm down or don't, sure. you know, this guy. Just let it happen. He let, this judge was so wonderful. He just let us say what we wanted. And even afterwards, the media were saying, we've never seen a case like this where the judge let everybody vent and, and you know. Well, I, I think maybe the judge realized that, you know, here's a family that's finally getting justice 12 years later. Mm -hmm. um, you, your, you folks have been searching for Lynn still to this yeah. day. I, um, I let him read my journal, and he actually gave me back a thank you card. And at the time, he said, you know, I wish I could give him, like, I think he said, like, 100 years or way more than asked. So I think he knew, you know, if he read that, he saw the raw emotions of what the family went through, yeah. all the medication we had to go on, um, searches, like what this guy did for 12 years. I think it was 12 years, four months, and two days or, of making us wait, and we finally got him. I really love that. Right? Yeah, I really... Uh, what, I wish they would do that in more court cases. Let the family have their say. Enough with the decorum. Well, but I... I it's, it's the perfect venue for... Yeah, I, you know. I, I get the rationale behind the judges often not, because they just... You, you've got to... You, you can't let a, a courtroom just go out of control. But in, in this case, in this situation... Yeah. Perfect. It doesn't sound like it was out of control. No, it doesn't. It's just the families having their say, which but, they deserved. Well, but that's—I think—that's the why they usually do is because it, yeah. it, it could easily escalate into just some yelling session. But I, this was so beautiful. This to just let he let them just vent. Yep. Share their accurate thoughts on him because he's yeah his apology. I'm sure it was a just load of bunk. it was just a load of shit. It was just yeah. Yeah. Him again, trying to control the narrative of how he is viewed. Yeah. No. Even with Brock right where he belongs, the pain he caused the two families still echoes. Everyone has to deal with it in their best way that they know how. Cheryl explains some of the challenges the Duggan family still faces today, 26 years on. Well, things were never the same. And, and then, um, you know, there was more fighting. There was... Uh, I mean, we, we were close at that time, but I just think the stress of everything yeah. just caused more, um, I, I can't describe it, but... Um, it makes sense, though. Yeah, there's there's some that don't even want to talk about it anymore. They've decided to, to let him go and not mm -hmm. destroy their lives any longer. Yeah. And, and uh, But I made a promise. I made a promise when my mom was dying. She said, please don't ever let him get out. And I said, you know, I, I promise we won't. And then in my journal that I've reread before doing this every day i wrote to lynn i promise you right to the end we're going to get him i i'm going to help you know fight this fight for you like yeah, holy yeah. crap i mean there is no right or wrong way to want to move forward i can understand some right. family members wanting oh i just don't want him in my thoughts ever yeah. again i can understand uh cheryl's feeling of no i'm he I can't, I have to make sure he never gets out. Yeah. So there isn't a right or wrong. And I, and I can understand how that would create a lot of damage and conflict internally as a family. Mm. The Duggan family and the Descharms would like to have Brock Graham remain in prison for as long as he can. Yeah. They fear for the lives of other potential victims and do not believe he's anywhere near rehabilitated. But Brock wants out. 
Cheryl explains. He is applying for everything that a prisoner would do to lead up to full parole. Right. So uh, we went back last year, and I believe it was escorted day passes, which was really interesting because um, the parole officers that were um, talking to him, they they were really able to get under his skin. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them had said to him, you know, like, well, well, why, like, why didn't you leave, or why, why did you do this, or I don't know what he said, but all of a sudden Brock got really angry, and we all went, aha. There's the true the Brock. Real guy. Yep. Yeah. There he is. There's the killer. And then he sort of caught himself and It's like oops. Yeah. But this this one parole guy just said to him, he said, you know, I, I can usually read you people like, but I can't read you or I'm having a problem. So they actually got to see him like S- the real him. Snap. Yeah. 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 Uh, he doesn't seem like there's a, an ounce of anything that he says that you can really trust. Other experts have weighed in on the case, pointing to the extreme similarities in the crimes that lead them to believe Brock Graham is a serial offender. Mm-hmm. We concur. Look at the uh, facts of the case here, for example. Two very similar-looking women who resembled a wife he'd been having marital troubles with. Mm-hmm. Use of blunt force, although Patty Ducharme was later strangled as she was not dying fast enough. Mm-hmm. Dismemberment of Lynn Duggan and attempts to dismember Patty Descharm, both in bathtubs in their own homes. And his cleanup after the fact to hide the evidence. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Cheryl shared another revelation found out during Brock's recent parole hearing. Brock Graham has a girlfriend. Yeah, that was another shocking thing when we went down into the uh, courtroom. There was a gal sitting all by herself, and we weren't allowed to be near her. And so the Charms and, and my family, we sat together, but this one woman was by herself. And uh, apparently she is his girlfriend. But he talked like, no, they were going to get out together and move out together. And he thanked her for her support and whatnot. Just and what he needs. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I figure he's got her set up. Like mm. we were all saying, oh, my God, get your will in order because you're next. Yeah. But um, the, the this one guy that was a real pit bull with Brock, he said to this gal too, he said, um, you know, it, it took a lot of courage for you to come out here, to be out here. And, and you know, we thank you for coming. And, and But I do hope that you will take in a lot of what you had heard today because some of the things that the Ducharme kids were saying, this gal, she, this girl, she looked shocked. Like yeah. she was like sort of gasping because he obviously wasn't honest with her. Like why would she even be with him? Like, yeah. yeah. But anyways. So he's got his next victim all lined up. Uh, please, please tell me, like, do you know, is she still with him? I have no idea. Because like, <sighs> Yeah, because yeah, I'm sure he blew smoke up her ass about like how, you know, well, this not as a, as it sounds. Yeah. You, oh my God. Well, I guess Cheryl will find out during uh, the next hearing if the same girl is still there. I'm I'm gonna say she's probably not, but hopefully not for her sake. For her sake, yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. I that that whole thing just always befuddles me how how people can. Yeah. Fall in love with a... A murderer. Convicted. Multiple murderer. Murderer. Yeah. Yeah. In a 1994 Surrey Leader article, a year and a half after Lynn Duggan's murder, Mervyn Duggan spoke out about the lack of resources for those left behind after a violent crime. Mm -hmm. The federal government rejected his wife Marlene's bid for disability pension due to her mental condition after her daughter's murder. 
She could not work anymore and lost her job of 20 years. Workers' comp declined to help too. And Merv himself had to retire due to post-traumatic stress syndrome caused by the crime and its aftermath. He felt strongly that they were being ignored. Cheryl has echoed similar difficulties in her own life, having lost a twin. Cheryl talked a bit about life afterward and what she does to cope with the loss of Lynn. Well, I, I needed a lot of counseling, and that's another issue that we had problems with because um, workman's compensation, I remember my dad calling them one day and, and asking for help because all these kids needed, uh, we all needed counseling. And mm-hmm. uh, they said, well, no, you know, if, if Lynn had any children, then we'll, we'll cover theirs. But no, you're not, not siblings. Right. Wow. So we had to fight that. Um, and then well, we all went for counseling. We all, like at the beginning, I remember the very first counseling session. And I remember we went to West Van, all of like my mom, my sisters and my aunt. And I just remember staring at this one woman and looking at her earrings. They were really expensive and they looked like some jewelry that someone in West Van would wear. And I just, I didn't listen to anything with her because I just figured, you know, my sister's murder is getting you to buy all this jewelry like I hated her and that was just the mind frame I was in sure. like for the first session but then we found somebody really good and and um yeah uh, but then you only have a certain amount that they would cover like and, 10 you said yeah and Ten then sessions. I just had back in after um the arrest or the conviction or whatever I had asked for more sessions but they just said because I had used up all the ones that that we were allotted that uh, they had to refuse my request so what happened is my sisters and brother had a few left over, so like I was able to use whatever they had left over, and, okay. and she managed to wriggle it around some way to do that. So, wow. but no, I it's affected me. You know, my life hasn't been, you know, I um, yeah. Do you have other people who have been through similar things that you talk to, or no, no, I did. Um, there was a. a one woman reached out to me that was a twin, and she had lost her her twin. Um, so apparently there was there's a group that was called Twinless Twins, and I sort of started reading up on that and whatnot. But no, I never I never followed through. There was just too much, and yeah, yeah. I just I actually became introvert. Like I I wouldn't go out. I we didn't date anymore because we were too afraid of guys, and um, yeah, I became very sheltered. And then with all the still ongoing about, you know, him applying for different things and which is eventually going to lead to applying for parole, it never ends. Oh, Cheryl, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm suspecting workers' comp's stance would probably have been their job is to provide benefits and support for work-related injuries. Yeah. And so I, I can only imagine. I'm sure that was their excuse, but they yeah. said they would take care of the kids. Yeah. You know, no, yeah, yeah. It it's it's such a kick in the in the junk. To yeah. um, you've had to jump through those hoops yourself for the counseling, and I have, yeah. I have, and I I got what was needed, but it wasn't without fight. Yeah, it's sad, and I, I it's ridiculous. I think is what it is. I think I don't think it's just a North American thing. I think it's a probably a global thing. But the systems are set up to try to catch people uh who are fraudulently 
applying for claims. The systems aren't set up to actually provide support for those who need it. And look at the justice system is set up to give the perpetrator as much counseling as he or she wants. And the victim and their family or who's left behind are just set to, you know, you're on your own kind of thing. Those are the people that should be getting the support. To heck with the guy on the inside. I mean, uh, some of them are going to be rehabilitated, sure, but that doesn't seem to be the rule. Yeah, and and we talked about this uh, outside of the show, and I, I fully support the perpetrators, the criminals getting therapy because the vast majority are going to be back out in public and I want to make sure that they well aren't going to recommit any crimes but it shouldn't be disproportionate whereas the the criminal gets support and, and the victims don't whatever is offered to the criminals needs to be offered and mm. then some yeah. for the victims yeah. Because they didn't ask for this. No. They they didn't want this to happen. They are traumatized instantly by this. They were thrust into yeah. this yeah. by some piece of shit. And then to just be left to pick up the pieces yeah. is not right. No. It's not right. And it frustrates me. But here we are again at the bottom line. It's expensive to give everyone therapy. So where does that money come from? How do we pay for it? Mm -hmm. Kept Cheryl's memories of her twin sister, Lynn, to the very end so we could Mm. bring things to a close the right way. Yes, yes. Let's talk about Lynn. So here's what Cheryl uh, had to say about her sister. Well, this is her diary, too. Okay, wow. And she's got where I went away, and she's like, oh, I cried when she left, but my grandfather gave me $2, and then we had Kentucky Fried Chicken like it was the... Usual Duggan way of coping. Sure, like, have Kentucky but, Fried Chicken. Yeah, when, uh, when I left because she was so lonely without me, and yeah, because you two were fraternal twins, and and so yes. you had that twin relationship. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And so were you were you guys inseparable growing up? Like yes, yeah, we were always very close. But she had her best friend, and I had my best friend. But we still did everything together, like on birthdays and trips and. Yeah. Can I talk about the keg and our birthdays? Yeah, absolutely. Like, or how we would go to a restaurant and, yep. and we would both sit down and we'd say to each other, like, don't start. And she'd go, well, you don't start either. And then the waiter would come up and we would just start laughing. And he, mm-hmm. the guy would have to leave until we finally composed ourselves. So then he'd come back and say, um, you know, are you ready now? And we'd go, yeah. And then we'd start laughing again. So it took about three tries with a with a waiter before we could actually order our food because we just had that connection where we would laugh together and once we started it just would never stop we've had a few incidences too where it happened in a real way um we were going to see a friend in grimsby ontario and i don't know what started it but once we got off the train and whatnot we started laughing for nothing and all of a sudden she had wet her pants so this happened all the time so we had she was contagious she made me laugh all the time and once we started they couldn't stop. So she was just a funny, naturally was, funny yeah. person. Mm-hmm. What did she do in her spare time? What was Lynn's, were, did she have any hobbies or mm-hmm. anything? Yep. She loved photography. So she started to do that. She took pictures of um, one of her best friend's daughter, Amanda, um, and she would take the outdoors. And then she would, that's actually what she would do, like in a field or something, take a picture of flowers or whatever. And those would usually be ended up in a frame for a birthday present or a Christmas present. Oh, nice. 
Um, she loved to camp. She loved traveling. She just, yeah. Loved life. Loved life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would people outside the family recall about Lynn? Oh, well, I think my dad said it in an article that uh, she was really quirky and, and funny. And uh, some of the things that she would come up saying to him, like there was one time at the dinner table, dad, my dad said that, oh, he really felt that he needed to go on a diet. And Lynn said, well, could she come too? Like just little things. And then there was like one time. Like it was a trip? Yeah. And then another time we were sitting at the dinner table. This is when we were about seven or eight. And Lynn's just sitting there while we're all eating our spaghetti. And my dad looked at her and said, Lynn, what are you doing? And she said, I ain't got a fork or something like that. Like it just, it just, that was Lynn. She was just. Um, she ain't got a fork. She ain't got a fork. <laughs> mm -hmm. What What were her ultimate goals? Did she have anything that she was reaching for? Well, actually, yeah. She just wanted to meet somebody and have a family and yeah. live the life that most people do. Mm -hmm. Oh, that tears my heart apart. Yeah. Lynn didn't get a chance to get there. No. Cheryl wanted to be very clear on one item, so she was adamant that we put this in. A lot of people would ask me, um, why, why was she with such a guy? Or why did she have a boyfriend like that? Or why, you know, how could she be with someone like that? Well, she met him on the May 24th long weekend. Mm -hmm. She only went on three dates with him, and then she was gone, yeah. June 16th. So it's not like they were having like a real torrid no, relationship. No. They were just dating. Dating, getting yeah. to know each other. And unfortunately, yeah. you know, he showed up drunk to her apartment that night and killed her. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for participating in this and your, your little yeah. doggy. And what's her name? Keely. Keely. Irish name. Ah. Well, thank you so much. Here, go to your Auntie Leslie. <laughs> Oh, wow, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, this one was uh yeah, I th yeah, I'm I'm super proud of this one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm proud of you too. That was uh I want to make an appeal to Brock. I don't know if he's ever going to hear it. Uh but if if he does. Hey, Brock. I'm not sure if you'll hear this, but everyone knows you're holding back the real location or locations of Lynn Duggan's remains. Rather than hold these poor people as hostages anymore with your deceit, why not just give it up? I'm sure that gesture of goodwill might reflect much better on your chances when your next parole hearing comes up. It just makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, Mike. So, yeah, yeah he, give it up, Brock, if you can, please. He, I, I'm sure he knows exactly where. <laughs> he definitely knows. Yeah. He's the one who did it. Well, you know, but I'm like, with him not saying, like, I mean, it leaves it up in the air for, oh, maybe animals took the remains. Yeah. I, I feel quite confident. I'm sure he knows. So that's it for parts one and two of Murder Most Pointless. Lynn Duggan and Patty Descharm. Oh, just a little, just a little episode for the folks. A little, a little bit of uh, wow. reality. Yeah, mm. it's so it, it's such a profound thing to hear from a victim, hearing the emotion, hearing uh, uh, the impact. Mm -hmm. Just something really profound about it. All right. Well, let's lighten things up a little bit. Oh, yes. Louis V. Yes, please. And thanks again to Cheryl and the Duggan family. Oh, my God, um, yes. Much appreciated. And we hope 
there is some resolution at some point very soon for you folks. Uh, I'm I'm just praying that that happens. Yeah. And also to the Descharms, I hope we did uh, Patty some justice here as well. I know you weren't directly involved, but uh, we we're there with you. And your your thoughts and feelings are important. So before we go, we want to give some shout-outs to our new Patreon patrons. Oh my goodness, there's a bunch oh, of them. Oh. It just keeps happening. It does. These people. I mean, I'm not I'm not complaining. No. It's just shocking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's shocking. Oh, here's a new one. This is an interesting one. So, oh. Katie Murphy. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like, you know, your average North American, maybe UK name, Katie Murphy. Yeah. Totally. Hong Kong. Oh, okay. Thanks to Katie in Hong Kong. There you go. You don't want to ever, like you mentioned to me week after week, you don't want to assume no where somebody is No you can't from. do it. You can't do it. So, Katie Murphy from Hong Kong, thank you very much. Wow, Katie. That's, yeah. uh, how are you enjoying Hong Kong? Well, it's the Hong Kongiest, I guess. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, you went there. I did go there. You did. Not inaccurate. No, it's not inaccurate at all. Um... Jessica Robert from Ottawa, Ontario. Wow, Jessica, thank you. Thank you so Getting much. a lot of Canadian uh, representing lately. Yeah, there you go. Um, look at this. Naomi Liu from Ventura, California. Oh, Ventura. Jesse the body? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Oh. No, I do not believe that. Well, it's Jesse the body. Hey, but thanks. Thanks, Naomi. <laughs> Ventura, right? Yeah. That's why you went there. Yeah, okay. exactly. Jesse the Body Ventura. Jennifer McGill from London, England. Oh, sweet. Some more, some more uh, jolly old England. That's right. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. It's another Prime Minister. What? Kimberly Johnson oh. from Cochrane, Alberta. Holy smokes. I curtsy Guacamole. to you. We curtsy. We bow. We curtsy. Um, we, uh, we, uh, hand gesture, we hand gesture <laughs> in your on, direction on a podcast yeah. that, uh, you couldn't see that uh, it was a nice hand gesture. I was, I witnessed it. I can tell you it was very regal. Yes. I was regally hand gesturing yep. to you, Kimberly Johnson. Yep. And, uh, we really appreciate that you came in at that level to support us. Um, muchos gracias, or as we say in Canada, thanks a lot. Your Honorable Kimberly, thank you. Kimberly Johnson, Cochrane. Does Tom is Tom Cochrane from Cochrane? You know he he better be because yeah. if not, then all's not right in the world. Yeah, Red Rider. Yeah, a little bit of right. Lunatic yeah. Fringe. That should, I wish that could be our theme song, Lunatic Fringe. <laughs> That'd be our out song. That should be like just our walking around in life song. Come on, Red Rider. Let us let us have the please, rights to your song just please. for S and G's. You you we're Canadian too, guys. Yeah, exactly. Come on. And uh, next up we have Dylan Nixon from Grand Prairie, Alberta. That's just a great name. Yeah. Dylan Nixon. Yes, yeah, the county of Grand Prairie. I, I, what? Yeah. Cal- this California. Canada, Scott. T8. We have counties here? Yes, there are counties in Canada. Jesus. You didn't know this? No. I grew up in Lunenburg County. What the hell? Okay. 
There's no counties, I don't think, in BC. Or well, that, well, there you go, and that's all I hear. About. I think that regions, BC is weird in that way. Or is everyone else weird? Maybe. Exactly. Well, Maybe. Th- thanks, Dylan Nixon, with the awesome name. Shanda DeForest. Mm-hmm. Unsure where Shanda's from. It may be DeForest. No, that's just, I wasn't going to go there. Shanda the Woods. It, it, She's Mike. from the woods. Mike. She's from the wilderness. She's dealt with this enough. This is why she's reached out to me. Oh, she reached out to you directly? Directly, just while recording. Uh-oh. She knew the shout-out was coming. Yep. And she wanted to clear the air. Oh, boy. And now I'm apologizing. Yeah, it's not. She's not from the forest. Where? <laughs> okay. Or the woods. She's not from the forest or the woods. Where no. is she from? The home. She's from the home. Yes. <laughs> like the old folks' home? No, no. That's just what they... <laughs> That's just what they call her home. I'm going to the home. The home. Yes. So the forests live in the home. Yes. Wouldn't the home be in the forest though? No, Mike. Quit it with this. No. What? No. I'm trying to. It's in Port Alberni. Oh, I'm trying to understand. Well, you're not doing a good job of it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I don't do a very good job of anything. But you know, do you know where she works? Uh, in the forest. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What does she do in the forest? Um, she's a tent tester. Oh. A tent tester. Yeah. Well, I mean, so she tests tents. Yeah, she tests tents for Coleman. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, because I mean, you've got to, right? You can't just assume that you've made this new tent and it works. So she's been doing it for a while. You're not speaking in the past tense. No, no, she's still doing it. She's still doing it. Didn't you get that past tense? I tried to not get. It. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you just blew right by it. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, but no, so yeah, she's a tent tester. Oh, They call okay. it a TT. Okay, a yeah, TT. A TT. So, yep, she, uh, minimum a month per tent. Minimum yeah. a month per tent. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's a pretty, actually, it's tough in the wintertime. Outside of that, though, it's great. It's great. It's a great time. There you go. Yeah, you, you can really, any forest that you want, you can test it in. We had some money uh, sent to us for our donut money via PayPal. We this did. Week. We did. Whoa. Uh, it's from the first one is from Cindy Sidhu McDonald. Wow, thank you, Cindy. She says I'm new to podcasts and came across Dark Protein by Fluke, and I love it. Hey, we're new to it too. I'm a true crime enthusiast and love this one so much. I went back to the beginning and have listened to all of them. We we apologize. Whoa, yeah, jeez. I love that you're local, so she must be from here. Yep. And maybe a little loca. Ha ha. Yeah, that's true. We are local. It's pretty yeah. accurate. I became a patron but didn't leave a message because I'm a bit technologically challenged, <laughs> as my kids say. Here's some donut money. Thanks for your story and telling Thanks for your storytelling and making my workday fly by. So well, wait a minute. She so she's listened, she's caught up, she listened to all of the shows. Yeah. And and she sent us money still? I don't know. Whoa. Wow. That's, it's amazing. That's, thank you, Cindy. Yes. Thank wow. you so much, Cindy. Um, the next is from Shannon Real. And she is from, it looks like Riel, but I know it's not. How do you know? Well, maybe it is. Mm-hmm. Shannon is from Prince Rupert in oh. northern British Columbia. The Roop. Out <laughs> in the Roop, yeah. Uh, she says, I love your show and your humor. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. She listens this every is so week. serious business, though. I don't know what she, what Joe she's. She says, I listen every week, 
Look forward to episodes to come and hope this small contribution helps to keep the cheese on the poutine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally You're is. helping us with the cheese yeah. on the poutine. Yeah, my cheese slips off the cracker, but not the poutine. No, my, my cracker cheese is... <laughs> Your cracker cheese. My cracker cheese has slipped yeah. immensely yeah. of late. Correct. Yeah. Stressed. Stressed cracker cheese. Well, yeah. Once I can release why I'm I'm stressed out a little bit, people will understand. Yeah. Um, and lastly, but not leastly, uh, from Rayanne Jack... As she says, thank you for your amazing show. It gets, gets me through my long work day. Appreciate you guys so much. They must be, they must be thinking of another show. It must be. Like they must, they, they must be listening to like case file. Or and, but something, then, something that, that's moderately intelligent. And, and then, and, and then somehow our address comes up and they send it. Well, th- th- thank you. She's listening to Casey on Case File, who's talking about worms and birds and water boxes. Yeah, that was a British accent, right? Yeah, I was sort of all you over the place. Scre- yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not good. You threw that off. I, I have to practice a little more. You do. Work, yeah. work on it. I'm going to work on it. Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Mm-hmm. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or... For one-time support, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Um, you know what? Like, if what? you want to send us a um, email tra- money transfer, like, interact-wise as well, we're, we're not opposed to that. No, we're not opposed to money in any... Uh, <laughs> in any form. ...method of Actually, delivery. if you want to just come come to our house and hand us cash, that's good, too. <laughs> Preferably in a wheelbarrow. In a wheelbarrow? Yeah. What? Yeah. Cash in a wheelbarrow? Yeah. Does that actually happen? Why not? <laughs> It'd be like a wheelbarrow full of pennies. That, whatever. That, you know. Whatever. Machines will count it. Yeah. The machine. Well, we, we probably can't do anything with the pennies in Canada anymore. Oh, that's true. Because, you know. Well, it's still a currency. Well, yeah, that's true. We'll just take it to the bank. We'll wheel it right on over. Do we, Would we get to keep the wheelbarrow, do you think? Uh, probably not. It probably costs more than the pennies. <laughs> I guess. So it just wouldn't be the be- smartest uh, business transaction. But A big announcement before we sign off. We will be doing our very first live show at the Vancouver Podcast Festival at 10 p.m. on November 9th, 2019 at the Rio Theater at Broadway and Commercial in Vancouver. As well... I will be teaching a podcasting masterclass, oh my goodness, earlier that day at the SFU Gold Corp Center for the Arts on Hastings Street between 2 and 3.15. We would love to see you there. You can learn more and get your tickets to both events at vanpodfest.ca. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you.